Welcome to TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am bringing you a follow up in case you wanted to know how things ended. And it is going to come courtesy of the one and only Spike Cohen. That's the 2020 Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate and Chair of You Are the Power. Now, Spike, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, and I appreciate you definitely sharing us with an update because before you'd come on the show and you had spoken about a situation in Gastonia with uh, about the recent killing of Jason Lipscomb. And I was wondering if you can kind of just bring everybody up to speed in terms of what we initially spoke about that brought you to the show last time. Sure, so last time uh, what I was on the show about was about the wrongful arrest and abuse of a homeless veteran named Joshua Rohrer. And um, uh, long story short, they wrongfully arrested him. They uh, it illegally separated him from his uh, PTSD service dog. They tased the service dog who later died. Uh, they claimed that the service dog had bitten them and that he was resisting arrest. Uh, he and multiple eyewitnesses claim that that's not what happened at all. Uh, and we have been fighting for the better part of several months, almost a year to get that body cam footage released, which would have shown obviously what had happened one way or another. And for whatever reason, the Gastonia police and the DA, Travis Page, fought in court multiple times to block the footage from being released. Now that it has been released, we know why. Not only did they wrongfully arrest Joshua, not only did they assault him and his service dog, but they were also intimidating and threatening witnesses with jail time if they said what had really happened that they saw and many other things. They committed multiple crimes. The video has just been released that you can actually see that on my on my YouTube channel. And and so now the next steps are we are pushing for full accountability for these two officers, Maurice Taylor the third and Sierra Brooks, as well as any other officer who has who has committed a crime there. We are also calling for North Carolina's State Bureau of Investigation to get involved because Officer Taylor's father is the head of internal affairs in Gastonia. So we don't expect oh. an impartial investigation there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's there are layers <laughs> to it. And so, but we have all of the charges have thankfully been dropped against Joshua. We now have the footage released to the public and the next step is to get the justice there. And unfortunately, I wish I could say that was the only abuse or harm that was being done by the, the city government there. Wow, wow, that's a very powerful thing that you were able to get the footage and then also to have the charges dropped, especially on behalf of this man because he doesn't have the resources. And uh, police, uh, when we see abuses, often will target the most vulnerable members of society. Exactly. And so, yeah, seeing that you were able to use your privilege and your power to push for justice for Joshua is an incredibly powerful thing. And so you must feel an immense sense of relief. Uh, you know, I'd like to say that, but I understand that this situation also rolls into the police killing of Jason Lipscomb. Can you tell us about it that? Does. It does. Well, I believe it does because uh, for those who have been following it, uh, a man uh, by the name of Jason Lipscomb, who was also killed by Gastonia police uh, about a week or so ago now, um, and the police are uh, claiming that he had uh, run over one of the officers and that they were shooting only to defend uh, him, to defend the officer from him. And his survivors are and family are claiming that's not what happened. Again, there's multiple officers on the scene. There's body cam footage. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. I don't know. Let's see the footage. And this is a, a troubling continuing pattern where we see that the the police there will make a claim. 
and then do everything they can to keep the footage that would show us exactly what happened from being able to be seen by the public. And that's a, that's a very troubling thing. In addition to that, when we were out protesting and have been out protesting and rallying at the courthouse and at the city hall, we were told that we could do it so long as we remain, I think, at least 50 feet away from the from the building, which was on the sidewalk. Now that these mostly black protesters have been showing up for protesting the Jason Lipscomb killing. Now that's been made to 300 feet, which means either private parking lots where the private owners could ask them to leave or the parking lot for I believe the city hall where they could also be asked to leave because it's not safe to be picketing in a in a parking lot. So we have seen some unequal treatment there. There was a journalist by the name of Scotty Reed who was there on the public sidewalk, literally just observing and reporting what he was seeing in the protest and he was arrested. It's a blatant violation of the First Amendment. Our yeah. activists with You Are the Power are already reaching out to Mr. Reed and to the protesters there to see how we can work together. Because I believe this is a common fight. Yeah, and it actually sounds like it's something that we're often seeing across the country where we're seeing abuses of power from law enforcement and also a lack of transparency when there is a death or there's any kind of use of force that is lethal in some way. And so, you know, I guess if you can help people understand a little bit more about what are the rules, what are the laws in particular when it comes to body cam footage? I know it can it can differ per city as well as maybe even on the state level. So what applies here? That's the problem is that in North Carolina, instead of the body cam footage being able to just be automatically released or released in the case of someone requesting it, it has to be released by a judge. Now that shouldn't be a problem in and of itself, but we know what happens when it's in front of a judge. The judge is going to defer to the police and or the DA on what they think needs to be done. And so we see this time and time again in North Carolina, when the police don't want body cam footage released, it doesn't get released. And when they do want it released, then it does get released. So anytime that I will admit, I'm on the side of the, if you have nothing to fear, then you have nothing to hide. Anytime that the police are trying to get body cam footage blocked, Tells me that they have something to hide. I don't know, and it's 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 a big problem. There's actually yet another thing that the city government there has been doing that has been an abuse as well. That has resulted in the death of nearly a hundred homeless people in Gastonia in just the last year. Pastor oh, wow. Moses Colbert operated the only homeless shelter in Gastonia. They forced him to shut it down earlier this year. Dozens of homeless people have died as a result, and and he's trying to get it reopened. They're now claiming that there's a water leak that he has to spend thousands of dollars to fix even though it's on their property and it's their responsibility. And it's yet just another example of the complete callous disregard that the city government and the police and the DA and everyone else in power there have for the most marginalized in that community. And we're going to continue to fight until we get justice for all of them. All right then, it damn sure seems like you have um, you have a lot of things that you are going to be addressing and working on. But before I jump into what's going on with Pastor Moses, uh, as far as it seems with the body cam footage and getting a judge uh, yep. to maybe be objective and actually be judicial. And where do you things stand right now? 
with the with the Jason Lipscomb footage. I don't even Correct. know if the, I don't believe the hearing has even been had yet uh, to have the footage released. Uh, if and when that happens, we will be there uh, calling for the release of the footage. There is absolutely no reason that we should not be seeing the footage. They've been relying on a on a, a ring doorbell camera that shows a very small segment of what happened to say what happened. And the thing is, it doesn't really show what happened. You see a bunch of officers running towards a car, and then you hear a bunch of gunshots, but that doesn't tell the story. And so it's really a he said, she said until we see the actual footage. So uh, no, we will absolutely be there calling for that. Uh, another thing that we are calling for in the wake of all of these things is a change at the state legislative level. There's no reason that this level of bureaucracy needs to be had to release body cam footage, not this day and age. I mean, I would argue that it needs to be live streamed every time it's turned on. But if it's not that, at the very least, there needs to be a very easy, simple, streamlined process. This needs to be as simple as a FOIA request. There needs to be, unless they have a very compelling reason not to release it, it needs to be the standard that it is released. This is public information. It's paid for by the taxpayer. It is involving the possible abuse or even the, in this case, the possible murder of someone. And there's no reason that the public shouldn't be able to see what happened for themselves. You know, and I couldn't agree with you more. There should be some kind of statutory time limit in terms of law enforcement preparing that footage so that it can be released and offered for anyone who would like to see it because you are absolutely correct in terms of the public being the ones who technically do own the footage and should have the right to access it and to view it because accountability and transparency is essential in what is supposed to be a democracy. 100%. But as we move on, um, because I want to make sure we get to discuss it fully um, in this time we have today about Pastor Moses Colbert. You would mention that he is trying to reopen the homeless shelter and there is a water leak on the city owned pipes, but the city claims that it's not their pipes. How is that? That's correct. How, how is what? I, it would either be their pipes or not their pipes. I, I don't understand. It, it, how it's are they? very. It is very clear cut, it is on their pipes. They're just claiming it isn't, they're saying no, this is on your side. Pastor Moses actually paid for a, a plumber to come out who confirmed, no, it's very simple that this is on uh, the city's property uh, and so it should be theirs. And so uh, when we go to the next city council meeting uh, on August 16th, uh, we will be there to call for many different things. And one of them will be uh, for them to confirm uh, that it is on their property and for them to fix it. Uh, Pastor Moses is trying to uh, stem the tide of an incredible number of deaths that have happened of homeless people in that area with his faith, faith, hope and love ministries. His vision eventually is to not just have a shelter meeting their basic needs, but also to have an educational center and all sorts of other incredible stuff. But he can't do that if they don't have running water. I mean, first of all, the, the hygiene issues, but also the fact they wouldn't let him open it without the running water. So um, you know, we're gonna be calling for that as well. And that, that's kind of wild to me, telling me that the shelter is probably inhabitable because of the city's behavior. That is, that's very rich and it's incredibly unfortunate. And it's those who are most vulnerable who end up losing out the most, particularly right now. And we're seeing weather patterns that are first of their kind. And especially as we enter now the fall season, which will roll into winter. And so having these shelters available up and efficient and operating is so incredibly essential. But there are so many things clearly that you are working on and fighting for there in the Gastonia area. And so I, I definitely commend you and I am very, very happy that you are continuing to use your voice to uplift these individuals there. And um, for anybody who wants to look at that Facebook footage or also to get involved and to help uplift you, whether it's to show up at the courthouse during these hearing dates, can you please let people know where they can find more information and where they can follow you in your journey and your fight? 
Sure, you can follow my social media. I am Spike Cohen on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and everything. You are the power is also on Facebook, Instagram, and and Twitter as well. Or you can go to youarethepower.net to become a member. What we're doing in Gastonia, we're doing across the country. This is just one of many cases that we're taking on like this, and we'd love for you to join us. We are fighting for justice wherever it needs to be fought for. Yes, and thank you so, so much for continuing that fight. We very much appreciate it. We commend you and we encourage those viewing to join you. So thank you so much. That's Spike Cohen, 2020 Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate, as well as the chair of You Are the Power. It's Adrian Lawrence and welcome back to the conversation. And now we are joined by Alan Miller, that's Climate Finance and Policy Advisor. Thanks for joining us, Alan. My pleasure, very nice to be with you, Adrian. It is lovely to be with you as well, even on this extremely hot day. And we've had a lot of these hot days. And I know that you're an attorney as well as an internationally recognized authority on climate, finance and policy. And that we need more consistent fact-based climate change reporting right now, isn't that right? Yeah, I think more than ever with all the disasters that we're seeing, the incredible heat waves, and um, it's almost impossible to describe everything that's going on and how quickly it's happening. Consequently, being able to accurately describe things and to get across the urgency of what's needed is more important than ever. Absolutely, it seems that we are in these kind of unprecedented times when it comes to the climate change and that there aren't enough informed people on the reporting end. I've definitely experienced it myself and I recognize the limitations of my own knowledge, which is why I don't jump into this arena, but prefer to talk to experts such as yourself. So let me ask you, how can authorities out there really maintain consistent climate reporting based on facts and scientific evidence? Sure, well, there are several things that are still very much part of the answer to your question. One is that actually the media, including people such as yourselves have a very important role. And I think on the front lines, we have our weather channels and weather reports. And when they describe, for example, a heat wave, it's very important that they include such as they can facts about the likelihood that such heat waves are due to climate change. And that actually has become more possible because scientists too have realized the importance of making such facts more understandable. So if you look back, one of, to me, the problems working on this issue for decades and being a lawyer, as you said, not first and foremost a scientist, is simply just understanding the vocabulary and the limits of what we do and don't know. So my only other introductory comment in response to you was gonna be, I think there's a lot the government can do and is starting to do better. So for example, the US government only in the last few weeks has created a website for heat information to make it more easier to understand um, what's happening and why and what you can do about it. That's an incredibly powerful thing because I think that a yeah. lot of people do look to the government or the leading authorities to tell them what is going on and to give them clear and concise information that is accurate. And that seems to be a little bit difficult, especially coming out of 
an administration where it did not seem like we were necessarily getting information. We're seeing misinformation, disinformation campaigns, all sorts of things going on. And also this political divide and politicizing what's going on when it comes to climate change. How do you think that government should approach that when they're seeing the politicization of issues like this that are largely science and fact based? Yeah, no, that's a very challenging question and it's been around for a very long time. First, just to start, you very accurately pointed to the fact that in the last administration led by he who shall not be named as far as I'm concerned, we did have a president who confused matters greatly by himself saying that climate change was a hoax. And even saying that ozone depletion wasn't a problem because his hairspray worked better when he had ozone depleting chemicals in his hairspray. So for starters, we do and fortunately now have a government that is committed to the truth of these things. And I think secondly, a lot more emphasis as I started to mention might be put on the communicate effective communication of these things. So. Um, it's one thing to tell people um, in very scientific language what's going on and describe what will happen in 2100 and people just turn off. So I think part of the answer is to put much more emphasis on effective communication. And that's where I do think that um, things like having much easier to access websites, which is start, are starting to happen. Um, Introducing climate change in our schools in a more effective way. Not unfortunately as some states are doing, saying we need to talk about both sides of climate change. It's not a debate, it's a, yeah. it's a matter of science. And I also put a lot of emphasis on having weather reporting as the front line. And so having, just to give you one immediate, very recent example, when the press reports heat waves, and I, I did mean to look this up on your network and I didn't have a chance, but frequently it's most common to see here's a heat wave and they'll show people in a swimming pool or eating an ice cream cone. As if the meaning of a heat wave is really not so bad. We jump in a pool and we buy an ice cream cone. When in fact, of course, the real consequence of having extreme temperatures is People die and people cannot work, people get much sicker. And that degree, that matter of communication and understanding is really still, there's a long way to go. Yeah, since I, I agree with you, the messaging there needs to be less of, oh, it's fun, time in the sun. When the reality is that there are people who are vulnerable, particularly people who are unhoused and elderly populations that don't necessarily have full access to air conditioning or to being in a climate where their health is not compromised. Absolutely. And so, yeah, having these conversations and also having the media make sure that they make that clear is an incredibly important thing. And so that's definitely something media and members of the government can do to help uplift the issue and ensure there's clarity. But let me also ask you, how can the average person fact check reportage in the media? Sure, well, that's never been simple because like so many other issues in our society, 
there's a lot of invest there's a lot of vested interest in confusing people and creating doubt and that's been true but going back to the issue of smoking and tobacco and continue until pretty recently with oil companies as we know spending a great deal to challenge public understanding so um, I think uh, there's not a simple answer to that. And that's part of why I think what the schools do in educating the public is so important. And if we all had children at home who could come home and say, as I recall myself, how much influence my daughter had on promoting recycling in my household. And um, I don't know if you have kids, Adrian, but I'm sure if they came home and told you what they had learned in school that day about climate change, it would have an influence in your household as well. Absolutely, I think that can be a very powerful message when it comes from people who love you, but also it does kind of put it in the framework of how you care for our earth, our world right now will have the impact on my future. And so I think that that's an incredible message that hopefully people will really share with those that they love. And so let me also ask you when it comes to people really stepping back in this political climate when it comes to elections, what impact does climate change reporting have on politics and elections? Well, I think in increasingly it's becoming a more and more important issue. It's unfortunately become extremely partisan. So it ranks near the top for Democratic voters and near the bottom for Republican. But it's also a, uh, a generational issue. And I think as uh, being a baby boomer myself, um, born in, the, uh, uh, in 1949, I think seeing the difference. I still teach in a number of universities as well. And I think there's an extraordinary generational difference here where as uh, younger people urgently need to vote on these things, it's their future more and more much more than frankly mine. And I think about this with my own daughter and hopefully maybe my friends, many of whom have multiple grandkids at this point. So as they age and become voters, I think that's gonna become, it's gonna be an answer to your question, an increasingly important political divide. Yes, I agree as well. And I think that when we consider the politics and where a lot of people are, you know, in this in this point in time when people fearing very much us being in a recession, even though we may not technically have that label yet, a lot of people would like to consider the issues that they can think of as being immediate in front of them, whether it's paying rent or being able to put food on the table. And so that larger issue of what could happen 50 years from now or even could happen 50 days from now is not necessarily uh, at the forefront of their mind. And I guess if those individuals were before you right now, what would you say to them? Yeah, no, I think several things starting with the reality that uh, we started off this conversation talking about the extreme heat waves. Uh, we also could refer to the flooding of extraordinary magnitude in Kentucky and in St. Louis where you've had uh, nine, 10 or more inches of rain in 24 hours. Amounts of rain that typically would take months. Those things are costing billions and even billions of dollars today, not 50 years from now. These are real world consequences right now. And I think putting more emphasis on making those connections to climate change, what it's doing already, 
and how much worse it's going to be um, month by month, year by year. And places which, you know, Portland or Oregon, people didn't have air conditioning, they didn't need it. And uh, they had 110 degrees. Uh, and and the, with the extraordinary kinds of consequences we're seeing. So um, not, not a simple answer, but I think it's very much part of what needs to happen now. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And Alan, can you please tell anybody out there who would like to follow you more and get more information where they can find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. So I have an author website, Alan S. Miller, Alan S. as in Sam Miller.com. And uh, I post everything that I write. I'm a frequent blogger on current topics like the recent Supreme Court decision and uh, do uh, accept email through my website. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Alan Miller, Climate Finance and Policy Advisor. Thanks, Adrian.